0: This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Hey, Hey, everyone. Thank you for stopping by on a Wednesday. We usually air new episodes every Sunday morning if you're new here, but lately we've been blessed with a bounty of wonderful guests so today's midweek talk is with jenna malone she's an actor musician writer dancer mother she has many titles and yet none that sufficiently describe who she is her latest performance comes in antebellum which you may have heard about in a recent episode we did with Janelle Monae. The film is about a renowned author who's thrusted into a new, unnerving reality in which Monae's character is forced to work as a slave on the eve of the Civil War. Jenna, in her role, is part of that new, unnerving reality in this terrifying horror film. If you'd like to learn more about Antebellum and where you can watch it, visit our site, at www.talkeasypod.com. As for Jenna, she's been acting on screen since the age of 12. She was a child in films like Contact and For the Love of the Game. And then, she grew up as a teenager and into a young woman in films like Donnie Darko, The Dangerous Lives of Alter Boys, The United States of Leland, Saved, The Ballad of Jack and Rose, Pride and Prejudice, Into the Wild, the list goes on. You have most recently seen her in The Hunger Game movies, Neon Demon, In Our Nature, and Inherent Vice. As you can tell by that short list of titles, Jenna is really capable of all forms of embodiment work. That's what she calls acting, which I kind of like. But in this conversation, we try to unpack... What's actually required of someone committed to betraying life on screen? We try to understand this moment in all its pain and precarity. We try to understand her past and how it may shape her future. We don't always succeed, but I know we always tried. So, I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. And more importantly, I hope this conversation helps you get through the week. Stay safe, be well, and I'll talk to you soon. Jenna Malone, hi.
2: Hi, how are you?
0: Nice to meet you. I've been excited to do this for a while, and... It's always nice when someone coming on has heard of the show, listened to the show, it makes life a lot easier for me. So I want to thank you right at the top.
3: Yeah, I'm a big fan of the show, actually. I discovered it recently. It was one of my um, lockdown discoveries as we've all been sort of diving deeper into the world of recorded conversations. and um yeah, I really love the the vibe of it. I find it's a really nice male counterpoint to Kristen Tippett's the poetry one that she does, or On Being, and now they have a poetry one, but I thought it was like a sort of a masculine feminine, two different spectrums, which felt nice.
0: I'm happy to be in the On Being camp. <laughs> How has your last few months been as a person, as a mother?
3: Yeah, it's funny. We were all sort of like having to describe it so much. I find that How I've been describing it has felt repetitive. So this morning when I woke up, I was like, how is it actually? Because I feel like I've been saying a lot of words like it's been a blur, discombobulated, strange. But then I was like, that's just kind of one part of it. That's like the easy part to sell. And then the more complicated or sort of long game version is like, oh, I've been recalibrating or... I'm in a growth space or I'm uncomfortable. And just to be able to say that uh, there's some sort of slump or rather stress in my shoulders, kind of like it finally relaxes. If someone was like, how are you? And they're like, yeah, I've been really uncomfortable, but growing.
0: You seem like you've taken those periods of growth seriously throughout your life because in doing research, you have said... Many times that I'm quitting acting, (laughs) the reason to quit acting has never been sort of for vain reasons. It seems to me that it's always about trying to redefine yourself in a way that is healthy and productive.
3: When I was in those spaces, I just think that acting wasn't offering the opportunities, the invitations of growth to be invited to grow when I felt that, I was like, oh, well, I need to grow somewhere else because mm-hmm. this feels stagnant or repetitive. And now I kind of see it as like I had this kind of invisible advocacy like meter where I realized that to be able to be a good actor meant I had to embody life. And when I was low on my life's like spectrum, (laughs) I wasn't like experiencing enough or having new rituals or new experiences or new point of views. My embodiment was becoming kind of repetitive. And so I kind of needed to step away and have a little bit more life.
0: When you're going back in and you're saying, I need more life experiences, these life experiences will fill up the well to be creative. Do you ever worry that thinking about them? in that way, sort of limits the experiences while you're having them? Like the experiences are only of value if they service my art.
3: Yeah, I definitely think that any kind of prerequisite that you put onto something limits the scope of it. But I think that's why I was saying when I was making those decisions, I don't think it was about that. I think it was, I was just fed up with Hollywood. I was like sick of my films failing or not being cast in the parts or experiencing rejection to so many levels. Mm -hmm. It was more like I was in need of mending, had a lot of mending moments, or also just I was done. I was just bored and I didn't want to do it anymore. I think now if I took that space, because I have that more foresight now of like, oh, I need life experience. I need to be, you know, just I understand... The older you get, you understand balance and your needs and what you need to thrive.
0: Can you take me to that first instance in your young career where you felt, oh, I'm failing.
3: Mm. Oh,
0: this isn't working.
3: Instantly, what was conjured was almost right before I started acting. Mm -hmm. I was living in Lake Tahoe. I grew up in Lake Tahoe. It was a very... You know, I had a lot of freedom growing up. I I don't even remember my parents being around mostly. You know, I just (laughs) played outside all day long, completely unchaperoned. And there were so many kids around and I would come home starving and someone would feed me dinner. I don't even remember. And, you know, just started all over again. And when I moved...
0: Food would just appear.
3: Yeah, somehow. (laughs) Or I remember climbing counters and just shoving my face or having my older sister make me stofers. So I moved from Lake Tahoe, and I moved to Las Vegas. My parents split up. I was raised by two women. They were together for 10 years. When I moved to Vegas, it was like this crippling, this crushing, I just hated it. (laughs) You know, I was nine years old. There was no trees, it was hot. I remember waking up and having like nosebleeds while I was making cereal, just felt like hell on earth. I didn't have friends, and it was kind of the first time I hadn't fully thrived. It was like in that kind of like, I hate this, this is not going to work for me, and there's nothing I can do about it. I started becoming obsessed with reading the newspaper Mm -hmm. because I found that it helped me feel like there was opportunities in the world. So I would read the newspaper and I would look for like, Free things and like a place for me and my mom to live in. And I would circle all the, the apartments that looked good and jobs for my mom. And there was a part of feeling like I had failed somehow. I think kids feel that indirectly when parents break up, not really knowing like what happened. Mm-hmm. Even though it wasn't, you know, it wasn't my fault at all. It just felt like my like life had kind of failed me.
0: Because the world around you has changed.
3: yeah. And everything that I loved was sort of taken away.
0: So I have a question. Yeah. You said when you were younger, Mm -hmm. you didn't know that your two mothers was any different than the mother-father relationship that your friends had. And your mother never really came out as gay. In fact, Mm. you said that my mom still renounces it. She doesn't like to talk about that. It was the only relationship she had with a woman. Mm. She found Christianity when they broke up and she started dating men again. When you're nine years old, moving to Vegas, looking in the newspaper for new ways of life, what is she telling you about that fractured relationship?
3: My mom is a pretty young mom she had me when she was 21 I just don't think that she had the language to really be able to not only communicate that but demonstrate it to me demonstrate healthy grieving practices demonstrate healthy self-care practices demonstrate how to be with yourself in those moments so I think it was a lot of fantasy I think that my mom and nice relationship in a really beautiful way was kind of built on like show tunes and like going to movies, talking about the dream space, like the apartment that we wanted, the ho- the house that we wanted. Mm. There wasn't a lot of space for like talking about what we had or where we were. I don't think that she was really capable of holding that space for me when I was that age. And so I do think that there was, um, that the failure of that And then the sort of life change created a form of escapism. But oddly, because I was raised so untraditionally, like I moved around quite a bit when I was younger, like 30 times before I was 10, just for random reasons, like economic reasons, or white trash would be the inappropriate term. So I lived in a lot of chaotic situations. So I feel like my rebellion... As a child was responsibility. And structure. Yeah. I loved structure. Like I would save my allowance. I would file it. I like I would basically steal money from my mom's purse so that we had money to eat for Taco Bell because I knew that maybe she wasn't as good with like money management. <laughs> I loved like paying bills and like checking the mail and all of that stuff. So somehow in the space of like not having someone to help me deal with. Of divorce, it was all kind of untalked about. Mm-hmm. I think somehow I was able to find grounding in it in myself in other ways.
0: You had to become an adult before you were meant to become an adult.
3: Yeah, well, trauma, trauma tends to ask the plant really hard questions. A plant that's traumatized has a choice to sort of find a way through or duck out. And I think that any time I've ever encountered trauma in my life, I think that I've it stimulates a need for growth. And so I think that I've always wanted to keep moving through it.
0: Did you find a way through in those early years through acting?
3: Oh, definitely. I mean, it's almost like a device of the poetry of the universe that this little, you know, nine-year-old girl in Las Vegas, Nevada, like found an acting seminar. Mm Mm-hmm. And that was the place that I ended up pushing, or rather placing, all of my hopes and dreams. I mean, it was something that I wanted to do. I had like a list of five things I wanted to do when I was younger. I
0: have that list right here.
3: I know, it's so funny. It's like a real thing. (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to be a teacher. I wanted to be a writer, an actor, singer and a dancer, or a dancer and a singer. I forget the the list.
0: Oh, that's so weird. I have president and astrologer on here i don't i must have a different (laughs) list i don't know what this is
3: i love it the blog sphere (laughs) it's very highly interpretive but yes i think it's a really beautiful like if you think about how people just pre real deep communication when we were emerging from the caves like how did we deal with our emotional trauma how did we find self-soothing i just love the the more mythical universal story of like a young girl and finds her voice. I mean, it's almost an industry of, you know, manipulation and decay and craziness, but it's also myth-making and it, it is is a beautiful box of voice amplification. So I think it's pretty sweet that that's how it happened.
0: I love how you're mythologizing both your trajectory and the industry At large.
3: (laughs) Well, you got to love it somehow, right?
0: (laughs) I feel like if you want to make stuff, you have to keep tricking yourself into falling in love with an industry that uh, will probably not love you back.
3: Yeah, but that's everything. I mean, that's like, you know, going to the grocery store and thinking that every vegetable is going to sit well in your stomach. Or like every box of food is going to be perfectly your, your companion. It's just not true. That's not how the world works. You can value things.
0: I never think that when I go to the grocery store. <laughs> I never think, there it is, the asparagus. That's, that's going to work. That's going to work.
3: I mean, rejection is sort of built into every, every operational force in the universe. It's just like how we, how we rationalize, how we build narration around it.
0: What have you been thinking about for yourself lately as an actor, as a creative person? What does your heart really want right now?
3: Yeah, it's strange because I've actually been having a really hard time wanting to act. Or not even wanting is the right word, but I I was working on this series before lockdown hit. And we just started going back to work last week. Mm -hmm. I was really dreading it in a way. It's weird. I keep thinking about, you know, I I have to go back to work. I'm obviously an actor. Like, this is what I do. But I'm realizing that when I'm in a space of discombobulation or recalibration, or I feel like if anything, this time has been a perspective shift. We were at this angle of perspective, and then sort of we're just blasting open. Like, our perspectives are just becoming wider and wider, and as my perspective becomes wider and wider, I then have to recalibrate my body into that perspective mm-hmm. to be able to do embodiment work. I haven't fully recalibrated into this, in this new perspective you know, of awareness. And so it feels weird to be going back to work, to be embodying humanity when I yet have not found my compass in this.
0: And trying to figure out who you are right now and how you should be. Have you been thinking about that young teenage self, this young girl who starts making money for her family at a young age, a family that needed financial help, and then at 14 you become emancipated. Have you been thinking about that self and trying to reconfigure a new one now?
3: Yeah, it's almost like that self was one of the first that needed to have the conversation with me in this time. That self needed to sort of be sat down and kind of congratulated, but also kind of held. Like I don't need to hold the whole universe together for anyone. But also, it's strange because I think that there's been a lot of full circle catharsis I was very much like, I wanted to move away and live on my own and do my own thing and just sort of have my own autonomy and, you know, loved that and loved being, having independence. But now I'm kind of like, oh, I actually really just want multi-generational living. I want to live next to my mom and my family and my friends and I want to live close to work and I want to be able to have proximity to the things that I know help me thrive. And it's not all Mm self-held operations. It's a lot of understanding that I need more community support, which is cool because it's like the complete opposite of when I was 14. (laughs) And I think it's also similar now, even when I'm looking into acting. I think my recalibration is less like I need to be able to do this differently. It's just more that I want us all to do it differently. I mean, it's such a great revisionist time. Everything has to be touched. Everything has to be edited. Everything should be reexamined. And like how we make films has been such a, I mean, it's always changing, but it's pretty wasteful and crazy. And the stories we're telling are really important. And so I want to like, make sure people are, knowing the importance and the value of creating new myths in this time.
0: I think in order to create a new mythology, we have to understand the previous one, you know, to learn from it. Right. And I wanted to ask you because Mm -hmm. there has been so much written on the internet about you being emancipated and then money owed and, <laughs> and the, the trickiness between being a child actor but really being an adult person at 14. What really happened there?
3: Well, every system is designed to work, even if it's broken for some. The system of Hollywood was not built for a single woman, single mother was not built for a tiny child that valued responsibility and discipline. It was also the world that we were coming from, from such like economic oppression in a way. We were not given the tools or awareness or even the strengths, the abilities to survive in a more highly calibrated capitalistic system and so I think all of those things just kept creating just these grand failures it was like my mom and I you know had to form a team so when I started working more she had to work less so because she had to be on set right so I was because I was a minor and we have to be on set but it's not really a rule that's supportive of single parents it doesn't allow single parents any autonomy nor is it a rule that has any flexibility so it's it's just a strange thing so she basically had to give up her economic abilities in the world for me to be able to then become get to work act and I did and it made more money than she was ever able to make herself so all of a sudden, all of these figures, right, these invisible figures are coming into our bank account. She has no idea. She really had no idea how to, what was going to be for taxes and the expectations and this and that. And so there was a lot of, I could say mismanagement, but really it was a system that was built to fail. I mean, no one gave her the tools to understand that.
0: And were there new people around you suddenly?
3: Oh yeah, for sure. There's whole teams that are operating. And we had accountants, sort of, but you know, not everyone. I mean, as much as Hollywood is like, you have to have these teams, it's not, it's mutualism is not the goal. (laughs) It's like teams, but all still geared towards autonomy. Everyone's still kind of working for themselves, but yet on a team. Uh-huh. It's, it's not an eco-village. Like, it's not a land trust.
0: That's a great way of putting it.
3: <laughs> so it just feels like, it's. of course it's going to fail. It's like a bunch of football players just playing for themselves. It's like they're not going to be able to have a really good pass. It might happen because of their abilities, but it's going to be more rare. So, yeah, I just think that it was just multiple systems kind of built against my mom and I to thrive. And then the sort of metaphysical, spiritual journey, and I think a lot of young men and young young women have been denied this kind of rite right of passage, this coming of age, this how do you become a woman. Like, how do you become a woman? How do you become a man? There used to be all these really beautiful rituals around that of like, you know, whatever it is. A thousand different things. We have none in this culture, besides graduating from high school, and I didn't even do that. So I, I just felt like I wasn't given any of uh, spiritual, metaphysical spaces to evolve in. So I used Hollywood as my alchemy to become a woman. I was like, oh well, mom, I'm, I'm an adult. I'm now. I can do this, and I'm really good on set, and I can do this. So I want to be my own person. I'm gonna emancipate, and I'm gonna do it all so now you can have a job and so it was just kind of like all these things built towards each other but then of course then at the end of the day it was like a 13 year old girl and her mother who had a lot of trauma who had a lot of um, really beautiful uncommunicated trauma between them didn't have the tools for communication and catharsis and so it was easier to just separate than it was to do the work. (laughs) Like, I was not interested in doing the work when I was 14. I was like, no. (laughs) And I'm done.
0: It's likely that you weren't capable at 14 of doing that work.
3: I don't think it's about capability. I think that everyone is capable. You just have to start somewhere. I mean, I have those kind of conversations with my four-year-old son. We just start talking about...
1: Chase Mobile App is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC.
4: Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. Let me tell you an unconventional story about a healthcare group that wanted to improve their efficiency. Boston Children's Hospital. They were already a leading pediatric facility. Their patient outcomes, workflows, and delivery of care were already great. But they wondered, how can we make it better? So the hospital got to work. Their idea was to build what they called clinical mobility, meaning a system which would allow their staff to access information and interact with patients on mobile devices anywhere in the hospital. And what made that possible? 5G. The hospital rebuilt their entire system with 5G technology at its core. That infrastructure now supports thousands of phones and tablets so practitioners can communicate with patients on a whole new level. Boston Children's also made sure the system could flex and scale to handle medical advancements like robotic surgery and virtual reality for training and research. This was worlds away from how they had previously operated. This innovative work hasn't gone unnoticed, first by patients, but also by their peers. Boston Children's was a first place winner in the industry category at last year's unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event that celebrates customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of innovation. If the Boston Children's story rings a bell with you, if your team has asked the same questions about building a better business solution, I encourage you to enter this year's awards. It's a great way to be recognized for smart, disruptive thinking in front of some of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobilecom mobilecom unconventional unconventionalawards. That's tmobilecom mobilecom unconventional unconventionalawards. I'll save you a seat. This is it. Your moment. This
1: is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global.
3: Anger, you know, how does it feel to be angry? What kind of expressions of anger are there? I think that every human has the capacity of self-analysis. I really do. I just think that we need to give more practices, tools, and be more demonstrative. You know, lead. Mm -hmm. Really lead well.
0: I like that so much that I think I'm going to change my mind almost immediately.
3: (laughs) Really? That's so cool.
0: (laughs) I'm still young enough where change is very easy. That's a better idea. Your way of looking at it, I like that more. I changed my <laughs> mind. But I think what's important for people to understand is how you arrived at that thinking, which I think comes in the form of being a young person on set where you have
2: mm-hmm.
0: a bunch of adults coming to you as a kid, as a teenager, looking for your real, genuine input. Mm-hmm. At a young age, you were told your voice matters. Mm. That's not true for a lot of people.
3: For a lot of children, for a lot of people, for a lot of humans, for a lot of women. I mean, there's a lot. There's a lot there. But particularly a child, I think it's it's one of the biggest gifts that I was given on this planet. was was basically a space built for multiplication so that I could learn how to amplify my voice, and what I mean by that is that it wasn't just one person. it was a multiplied effect. It was several people, and then it was 14, and then it was 32, and then it was 56, and it just kept getting bigger. And because of it wasn't just one human that was asking my honest opinion, it was a constant variable. It felt like it gave me an ability to grow in that mm-hmm. space. Whereas sometimes if it was just one human, like if it was your grandma who like always treated you in this really cool way and you found confidence with her, you really found your voice and you felt that you were respected and you were like, wow, it's so cool when I'm around my grandmother, I feel like this. But then when you go to the grocery store, you're like shy and awkward and can't find your tongue or like in high school history, you can't get up in front of the class because you can just feel the weight of their prejudice or their judgment, rather. I think it was because I I was given the gift of multiplication, of support. And in that, it was just, it built amplification. It just did it. (laughs) I didn't even have to do much work because it was just a natural, almost conveyor belt. And that's, I think, what's given me so much hope about that. But it's weird because I do know that like the child actor thing, right? It's like this funny myth in the universe. Of, like child actors are broken and decrepit and it's this horrible machine. And I never really understood that. Like I get it. I get that there's like a dark side because there's a dark side to everything like the predators and the harassment and the rejection and the drug use and the amounts of money and the sort of like being coddled. And I mean, there's a lot of weirdness in this business. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of weirdness everywhere. I mean, you're the star cheerleader. Like you're going to be coddled and be being given things that no one else in your crew is given. Yeah, I never understood that, the weird child actor myth, because... Being given a voice at such a young age, not even being given because that feels like so weird, but I was constantly given the opportunity for, of permission to use my voice.
0: You said that when I was younger, every part that I played had something to do with my own personal evolution, whether I knew that or not. And I wanted to go to this three-year period between 2001 and 2004 Okay, <laughs> You have these four films that come out. Donnie Darko, The Dangerous Lies of Alter Boys, The United States of Leland, and Saved. In these films, you are basically presented as the prototypical, relatable, sad teenage girl. I wondered how you managed young people aligning themselves with these fictitious versions of you
3: particularly in those films i felt like i was playing these um it was almost like these using the stereotype of girl next door but each film was kind of offering me up the opportunity to deepen those so i felt like it it felt like a lot of Like, I'm portraying teenagers as they are. Like, uh, it felt more authentic to me. And so, yeah, still to this day, if anyone ever mentions those films, I feel kind of nostalgic about it. Those four films were also the first things I did once I moved out. So Dangerous Lives of Boys was the first film I did when I was emancipated, and then Donnie Darko, and then... I think there was some other things in there. Life as a house, and then saved, and um, United States of Leland. I don't know the order, but that's cool. They all came out together because independent films have such a funny life, where they sit for a while on the festival circuit. But it's it's just interesting that I emancipated. I was like, okay, mildly like f you um, to my f- <laughs> my family expectations. And then instantly Hollywood gifted me these opportunities of teenage embodiment that wasn't stereotypical. It felt very breaking of stereotypes, which I feel is so cool. You know, I think that we always always need that. And I also think for me, as I was sort of getting older, I mean, where do you go from girl next door? It's awkward. I mean, it's awkward the positions that women fill anyways in those stereotypes where you're either girl next door or the or the slut. It's like crazy. <laughs> There's like no in between. So I think I was in my own way trying to evolve that and be like, okay, well, what am I? I don't know. Let's keep, because I'm going to be older. Like I'm not going to be a girl next door. So let's see what's on the other side of this.
0: Were you always mindful of that question? I am going to be older. What do I do next?
3: Yeah. I think that that would be the one thing that I feel like Hollywood has growing up in Hollywood, there's been a detriment, but I do think that we're all kind of inundated with images and having the delusions of beauty expectations and stuff, but I remembered this really kind of sad story when I was doing Cheaters, and it was the first film I did completely on my own, but the emancipation hadn't gone through yet. So, I was there, and it was kind of a lonely time. I was in Toronto, and surrounded by all these like older teenage boys who were like more like into drugs and older things. And I was like still young enough to be like, "Mm, I don't know. I don't actually know what my scene is. And I remember just being sad and thinking like looking in the mirror and being like, I think I'm aging. (laughs) I was like 14. I remember looking in the mirror and being scared about that. And in the middle of the night, I ordered, there was like a QVC ad for this like makeup box that had all this makeup and then like these anti-aging things. And literally at 13, I bought this, had it delivered to my hotel in Toronto. And like, I remember looking in the mirror and like trying to put the anti-aging cream like underneath my eyes. I felt like it was an out of body experience and I so glad, whatever it is, like my ancestors, like angels, like the energy of the universe protecting me. There was some some sort of omnipotent like, energy in the room, just being like, uh-uh, Jenna, no, that's not the road you're going to go down. Like, I understand your insecurity. Let's ha- let you have this little ritual, but this is not going to be where you're going to go. And I, I remember thinking, like, this is stupid. Why am I doing this?
2: Mm-hmm.
3: But it was still in me. There was still that seed of insecurity and not really knowing what aging meant. Not really knowing how I could transcend that. It felt like a heavy, dangerous space as a woman and as an actor.
0: Do you think you've gotten over that insecurity?
3: I think I've alchemized it quite a bit, like in the sense that it doesn't weigh on me. I think it's something that I just understand more. But I do think there's still fears there. I think there's still insecurities there. And I think it's not even about, it's easier for me to get lost in the film of it because I like the character work. I think for me now, it's more just like my own life of like dating even. I'm 35 and like thinking like, oh, like what does a 35 year old wear? (laughs) I have no idea. Like, am I old? Am I young? Like, I don't actually know. And I don't, I don't know. So there's, there's a lot of like, it feels like I've, I've circled, full circled, and now I have more almost like childlike insecurities. Mm. The grace of aging, I want to do it well. I want to love that part of myself, and I don't want to live in any sort of like um, self-hating cycles. I'd like to wear it with joy, be able to transcend the societal weight of that. But I'm not always that person.
0: When you're this young kid becoming an actor who evolves into a young woman who is now 35, still a young woman, by the way, Um, just so we know. (laughs) I know people can be really shitty. I've been the worst person in the world at times. We all have. But what I can't tolerate is when people don't learn from their mistakes, when they can't actually see that they've taken a path down the wrong way. The only way I have ever learned in my life is through my mistakes.
3: What are those mistakes? <laughs> in a list, and a graph.
0: <laughs> what are those mistakes that matter?
3: The mistakes that matter for me are the ones that shake you to the core. Dropping a coffee cup is like, that's not going to shake you. That's not going to shake you the very birthplace of where your character came from but if you drop the coffee cup enough and you start noticing how you're mildly kind of hating yourself that you always drop this coffee cup always and you feel the weight of other people's eyes I just think that like those it makes you start wanting to look at that so I think any kind of mistakes that kind of shake you awake or force you to re-examine or just really make you feel uncomfortable. I think those are the gifts. I mean, that's gift work. Discomfort is growth. Like even on set, just to take it out of my own personal stuff, like on set when I was doing like really good work, I thought I was great. I wasn't actually growing. And even the work that I would, would watch where I would be like, oh, yeah, I know how to do that. I think Saved was actually one of those films where I constantly felt like, oh, yeah, I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm doing. But I just also felt like I wasn't growing. It's not my best work. It's like I, I didn't really do that much in it that I feel proud of. Anyways, I don't know why. But it's like it's the places where you're like sweating and so scared that you're going to get it wrong you know, Mm -hmm. that push you into finding other ways to be. How do you be? How does anyone be in this world? It's just too easy to um, allow society to determine that for you. So I think our mistakes mostly are ones against the delusion of society. They like help us open up to be like, what is really good for me here? what is not only good for me, but good for everyone I love. I love a good mistake work.
0: (laughs) So let's not have society define this part because I like to think of this show as a time capsule Mm -hmm. for everyone that comes on and myself included. So let's think of you, Jenna Malone, at 35. What is the work you are most proud of?
3: In life or in film?
0: I like it either way.
3: I mean, because, you know, the work is there's so many things. I think I'm proud of two things. I'm really, really proud. Or not pride, I hate pr- the pr- proud word. Um, I was raised moderately Christian and it was always pride cometh before fall. And just like that word is so mm-hmm. imbibed with strangeness. But I have a deep feeling of like appreciation when I think about the work I've been able to do in music, actually. There's been two songs that I completely freestyled just off the cuff and allowed kind of the universe to channel through me. And I'm so proud of them. Like they're these little children that I feel like whenever I I lose faith in myself or I don't know where my courage went. I'm like, where was that? <laughs> like, where did I set it down? I think about what I needed to do to bring those out, which required a lot of opening, which required a lot of fear, which required a lot of courage, perseverance, failing in public, stumbling, but keep reaching. That I feel like the when I get into a space of freestyling narrative songs, it's some of the most completing, fulfilling work I've ever done. And I've reached it once or twice in film work. That same kind of, like, I feel like I've failed so courageously that actually I succeeded or something. Mm -hmm. It was in The Neon Demon. I don't know why, but for some reason that that really felt like a a departure for my skill set of embodiment. And I'm still really proud of the work that I did on that one.
0: What are the songs?
3: There's this one called I'm Okay, which is the title of the album, the, the band that I'm in the shoe, which is me and Lem J. Ignacio. It's like a three or four-minute song. And then there's this other song called Predator Dating that we've never released, and it's about eight minutes long. And I basically just vomited it out after I read Guns, Germs, and Steel. And I was like, oh, wow. That was a really cool. Like, I felt like being able to alchemize the entire journey of human history, Mm -hmm. (laughs) like, spit it out in a freestyle with some piano felt pretty cool.
0: We should have some of it play. I can send you. I can send you those.
2: Well, I didn't even cry that day. Yeah, I just walked out straight and I said, Well, okay.
0: Now, here's a bit from her song, I'm okay. We'll be right back.
2: shit that you had to say I was hoping just to get in my car and get on the freeway But my Google Maps was telling me it was red and not okay So I just sat in my car and let it all out And I pretended to text you what I wanted to say But I thought I'd write this song instead Cause it's cooler Than calling you and texting you Like I was a high schooler But I guess it's not cool Anyway To lose your love To go astray I guess it's not cool to go away. I guess it's pretty bad.
0: As we leave this conversation, okay. I'm thinking back on the nine-year-old self in Vegas. None of your friends around and, and, and a person who was feeling lost and who did a bit of myth-making with her mother as a way of getting by. I'm thinking about her, and I'm thinking about you now as a mother at 35 in a pandemic. What does she want?
3: Yeah, if I sit her down and, and we have a, a little bit of a nonverbal conversation, it's, it's a really nice melt space. It's an honoring, I think there's there's a little bit of me saying, you know, honoring the soldier and her, and kind of letting her set down a little bit of her soldiering wares. And also, um, I think that little girl's really happy that I've basically continued to build the idea of family. I didn't give up and i think that i think in that space that i was in when i was tiny it felt like family was such a um like a construct like it didn't make any sense to me and it felt really easy i think maybe that was a failure that i felt it was a failure family when i was that that age and i think that uh, i could see a whole nonverbal conversation between her eyes and my eyes and Some deep breaths and shoulders of just, like, thanking me for continuing to hold that space for family and keep elaborating it. And like right now, you know, I'm looking for, like, a compound somewhere in Southern California so all of my family could live close to each other making it a land trust and seeing if other friends want to come in and a holistic kind of system built on more mutualism and collaboration. And um, I don't think that that nine-year-old would have been able to voice voice those needs or wants. But I think it's like a kid who's never been in a candy store before.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: They don't need to say anything. You could just read it on their face. They're home. They're so happy. So, I think there's a completion in being able to gift her that home that she was looking for.
0: Jenna Malone, thank you very, very much.
3: Thank you so much. This was really lovely.
0: our show special thanks today to sloan kessler and amanda dykema jenna's latest film antebellum is now available to watch at home on demand through redbox apple tv google play and more if you'd like more info on how and where to watch we'll include some links in our show notes at www.talkeasypod.com if you enjoyed today's Talk with Jenna, I think you may like other episodes with folks like Jenny Slate, Britt Marling, Janelle Monet, Brittany Howard, Elizabeth Gilbert, and Titus Burgess. You can find all of those and more on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you do your listening. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TalkEasyPod. And if you'd like to join our mailing list, drop me a line at sam at talkeasypod.com. this show is made possible by our incredible team our executive producer is jenik sabravo our illustrations are done by krishna shenoy our associate producer is nikki spina our lead editor is andre lynn our assistant editors are david harding eli weiss and rena Zhang. our music is by dylan peck our marketing is by patrice lee Our interns are Juliana Rector, Grace Perkins, and Ian Simmons. Graphics by Ian Jones, Derek Gabrizak, and Ethan Seneca. And finally, the show is produced by Caroline Reebok. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. We'll be back on Sunday with Miranda July. Until then, stay safe, everyone. And so long.